This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Legendary Puerto Rican Baseball Hall of Fame outfielder Roberto Clemente joined the major leagues in 1955. That was eight years after Jackie Robinson became the first black player in the history of the league and nine years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 became law. For the first 13 years of his career, the Pirates spring trained at Terry Park in Fort Myers. This was during the time of Jim Crow. He spent all 18 years of his career with the Pittsburgh Pirates during that that stretch, Clemente was a two-time World Series champion, 12-time Gold Glove Award winner, and 15-time All-Star. He was the first player from Latin America inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Roberto Clemente died on December 31, 1972, in a plane crash while departing Puerto Rico to deliver help to earthquake-devastated Nicaragua. September 15th was Roberto Clemente Day, coinciding with the beginning of National Hispanic Heritage Month. So today we're going to talk about the life and legacy of Roberto Clemente and what life was like for him in Fort Myers during that part of his life. I spoke with two men familiar with his story last Thursday. Let's hear that now. Glenn Miller is a journalist and part-time instructor in the journalism program at Florida Gulf Coast University and past president of the Southwest Florida Historical Society. Glenn, thanks for being back. My pleasure. I love to talk about Clemente. And Woody Hansen's a Fort Myers native and local historian who was a clubhouse boy for the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1965, 66, 67, and 68. Woody, welcome back to you as well. Uh, thank you, Mike. Good to see you. Do you have memories of watching Roberto Clemente play spring training games in Fort Myers or being a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates back when he was playing? Add your voice to this conversation by joining the conversation on WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So you're both longtime baseball fans. I know that for sure. Long enough to remember when Roberto Clemente was a player. Glenn, let's start with you. Like, what do you have as a fan memories of him? I saw him in person once in St. Petersburg at Al Lang Field, spring training in the 60s some point in the third base bleachers, possibly with my brother and dad. And we were down, to, I'm sorry, the left field bleachers. So we're down the left field bleachers behind the third baseman. Ball hit down the right field line. Clemente races over, spears the ball by the line, turns and fires his throw to third base from deep right field. The runner on first almost always goes first to third on a ball like that. But not that day, not with Clemente, not with that arm. I can still see the ball zipping, zinging through the air all the way to third base on the line. I, I realized I was in the presence of greatness. Could you hear it, the ball? No, that was too far away. Too far away. <laughs> yeah. But I could see it, and I was uh, slack-jawed in amazement. What about you, Woody? Um, I think I was on the bus that day going to St. Pete, and we had a wreck um, and somewhere uh, near Venice, and the bus went up in the bushes, and all the ball players had cardboard boxes with towels from the clubhouse where they're playing poker. And we got to Alang Field uh, just in time for me because my boss went to the beach with his wife and, and sent me and uh, to get the equipment out of the bus to the, to the clubhouse, to the dugout, and the pitcher didn't get to warm up that day. Um, so I, I remember that day. Um, the day that he was there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I threw a Coke bottle at you, if I recall yeah. correctly. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, so you were clubhouse boy with the Pirates. So how, about how old would you have been, and how much time did you get to spend around Roberto Clemente? Yeah. Um, well, in 1965, I was in fifth grade, and um, I hung. I went to all the games. And, and I love baseball. and. Uh, I hung out at the back door of the clubhouse to get broken bats after the game. And um, John Hallahan, they call him Hooley, uh, who was equipment manager, uh, was standing at the back door one night. And he just, you know, 
had one of those T-shirts, you know, like white beater T-shirts, whatever they call them. And, uh, and he said to me, he said, hey, kid, you're here every day. You want, you want a job? I, I go, yeah, sure. And so I got in a clubhouse. And it was, you know, 65, you know, I'm cleaning spit ins and hanging out sannies and socks. You know, by the time I got to be 68, the guy knew I'd show up. I was, you know, he could trust me. Um, so then they started sending me on road trips and going to the beach with their wives. But, but you know, what that did, that put me next to Clemente early in the mornings. He was the first one in the clubhouse. So was I was there early as well. I got to, you know, sit on the bench with him. I got to ride in buses to ball games with him. And uh, he was very, he was very private, um, you know, a man of great dignity and patience. And um, so those sort of things, but I had many memories of great, of, like, sports events. Yeah. Um, were you fully aware of his greatness? Yes. Yeah. yeah there was, the, everybody on the ball team was aware of his greatness. And I think um, I went to McKechnie Field in Bradenton, and I'll never forget, Clemente was in right field and that over on that first base side toward the Pirate Clubhouse is in Bradenton, and, a, and there was a young Dave Cash yeah, who was just sitting there just taunting Clemente in right field, like from that side, calling him the old man, hey, old man, old man. And Clemente wouldn't even flinch. He just paid no attention to him. How, um, you know, was he treated by people at the stadium, um, you know, the staff, the fellow players, things like that? Was he treated as an equal from what you could remember as a fairly young person? Uh, yeah, I think that's a good word. Um, I, nobody, you know, I think it was the culture of the clubhouse and so forth. Nobody, it's like nobody put him on a pedestal. Um, and, and he really, he was a very quiet person. Um, and But it didn't penetrate that personal space either. Um, but, but, you know, I just let his, like, actions, okay, yeah, I remember in 60, 68, we played the Red Sox, and it was a three-inning rainout. And, uh, you know, the first inning, um, Yastrzemski hit a shot to right field. Clemente went up over the wall, got it, and threw, like just like Glenn said, a laser beam. Didn't even take a hop, but to the third baseman and, you know, and, and got the guy out. And, and so what I remember is that I was sitting on the bench, and all the guys that aren't in the field, you know, they're on the bench. They're, you know, they're like just like you know, in amazement. Just yeah. like, and they realized what they saw was very special. Glenn, um, you know, what is the historical account of how he was treated in Fort Myers back in the 50s and 60s? That was uh, still very deeply Jim Crow South times. Very much Jim Crow South. Colored seating at Terry Park. Uh, the uh, players of color with the Pirates did not stay at the Bradford Hotel downtown with the white players. Roberto Clemente stayed at a boarding house on Lime Street owned by a woman named Etta Power. And uh, he's quoted in a book uh, by David Moranis titled Clemente, The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero. It's a man from Dunbar named Pat McCutcheon, who I got to talk to, and I bet Woody knows or knew, uh, talked about being around Clemente. And he stayed in this boarding house uh, not far from the park while the white players are in the lap of luxury at the finest hotel in Fort Myers. And there's a great story I love to tell that Moran has covered in this book here. Branch Rickey, for a little historical context first, he was the executive with the Brooklyn Dodgers who signed Jackie Robinson, Brooklyn Color Barrier. So after he leads the Dodgers, he goes to the Pirates and uh, wants to rebuild this dreadful team. And he doesn't care about a player's color or ethnicity. He just wants good players. So he brought the Pirates to Fort Myers, 1955, first year they had spring training here, gathered all, all the players around, the white players, the black players, the Puerto Rican players, and said, while we're here in Terry Park, inside these gates, we're all pirates. We leave here, 
everything changes. And Woody, what, Woody was just a couple years old then. But uh, everybody knew, the, like Clemente going to stay at a Powers boarding house, that things changed once they left. They couldn't go to a restaurant. They couldn't stay at a hotel. Uh, they dealt with a, very much Jim Crow South. Were you aware of that as a young student or as a young kid? And how did it make you feel? Um, no. Um, you know, it's like I, you know, fifth generation, so it's kind of ubiquitous to me, you know, of all that. Um, uh, but I want to, I'm, again, I want to touch on what Clint said. I did an oral history interview with Pat McCutcheon. He was Snag Thompson, our sheriff's, like, you know, guy in Dunbar. He could sell, he told me he's the only guy that could sell whiskey on Sunday, you know, and all that. But he was telling me about Clemente. And Clemente would come from Lime Street, and he would go to Club 21. So those of us that grew up here remember it was Anderson Avenue, and I, and I can't remember the cross street, but it's right across from, you know, Lime Street, Clemente Park. And he told me that Clemente would go there many nights. There's nothing else he could do. He was allowed in Club 21. And it was, you know, it was a place like, you know, <laughs> coming up and stopping on MLK at that light. I, I was a kid. I look over, I'm scared to death at these characters, you know, and uh, and, and the Clemente, Clemente would go there and uh, and just watch. Just you know, he was just he was curious. He was curious about American culture, society, and he was certainly you know aware of Jim Crow because he was you know the subject you know of you know of its effects. I found uh, his final interview that he gave in October of 1972. Uh, it was on the Pittsburgh Cable News Channel, and in it he actually reflects on how players of color were kind of made fun of automatically in the press, and he even uh, mentions Fort Myers in it. So let's, let's hear that now. I used to read a paper of a Latin player or a black player. They always had to say something sarcastic about it. For example, the first day that I got to Fort Myers, that was a, a, a newspaper down there where the newspaper said Puerto Rican hot dog arrived in town. So now, these people never knew nothing about me. But they knew I was a Puerto Rican. As soon as I got to camp, they told me of a Puerto Rican hot dog. Now, this is something that I refused to admit. I talked to some of the Latin players, which at that particular time, they was in the, in the Major League, and they told me, Roberto, you better keep your mouth shut because, you know, they will ship you back. I said, I don't care one way or the other. If I good enough to play here, I have to be good enough to be treated like the rest of the players. So that's him clearly speaking about his integrity and his, his unwillingness to waver. But then when I told you this about this soundbite before the, the show, you mentioned that it's talked about, this Puerto Rican hot dog quote is talked about in that book. Yes, David Moranis' book, Clemente, The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero. I just reread the parts of it about Fort Myers. Moranis researched the quote. And he said he looked through every day's paper of the Fort Myers News Press, found no evidence of that quote being in the paper. And he looked in some Pittsburgh papers. The basic thrust of Clemente's argument you can't contend with. Obviously, there was great racism in all facets of society, including the media. There were sh shameful episodes. It pains me as an ex-sports writer to say it, that uh, many sports writers would mock the way Hispanic players spoke with an accent in print. Yeah, I couldn't tell you exactly how, and I wouldn't attempt to speak the words the way they were spelled to make them look less than whole, make them look less than intelligent. I always wonder how many of these white sports writers could speak Spanish, and they're, they would mock somebody like Clemente or Minnie Minoso or whoever who spoke English with an accent. 
Maybe there was a different paper. Was the, was the news press the only paper back then? Yeah. Well, it could have been. Could have been a local, well, no. uh, smaller. It could have been maybe the Sarasota Herald Tribune, the Brainton Herald, right. or the Miami Herald, or St. Pete Times. Uh, but uh, Moranis didn't research every paper in Florida. He wrote in the book that he researched every day's issue of the news press, found no evidence of the hot dog mm. quote. So it could have, maybe it was in the sporting news. Right. What was it like hearing his voice, Woody? I mean, you must have at least heard it a little bit. I get the feeling he was a fairly quiet person, but. Yeah, you know. Because what he what he used to do um, he, when I'd I'd come in I was a kid you know and I was I was like a white kid young kid you know in the sixties um, and he he would sit I, he'd ask me to sit down next to him and he would ask me questions that I think that would help him understand American culture probably I don't know things that he experienced with Jim Crow um, but but he asked me things about my family and about school. Things are very fundamental, um, you know, issues and so forth. Um, but, but you, know, that, you know, he was anglicized about as soon as he got on the team. I had, you know, I had a, one of his, I had a couple of baseball cards, rookie cards. It was called Bob Clemente. It wasn't Roberto. Glenn just pulled one out of his book. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, my Bob Clemente. So he had that, you know. And you got to remember, too, the Pirates in that time, you had, you know, Manny Moda, Manny Alou, Jose Pagan, Manny Sanguin. Um, you know, I don't know if they were all, you know, from Puerto Rico, they were Dominican Republic and others. And that's what I remember that distinctly the difference between the Kansas City Royal Clubhouse, the, the Park Clubhouse was Latin America. And, you know, and a lot of things from that culture came up in those, you know, in that clubhouse. I, I saw them put the steamer trunks together and have a boxing match. You know, where Jose Pagan came out with the silk cape and he, he won the team boxing champ, championship. Um, during that same interview from Pittsburgh, he also talked about how he had never really come across racism until he got to the United States. Let's hear that. I think that I belong to the minority group. I am Puerto Rican, I'm black, and I have, I'm between the world. So anything that I do, first, I, re, I will be reflected on me because I'm black. And second, I will be reflected on me because I am Puerto Rican. But with this one, I tell you that to me, I always respect everybody, and thanks to God, when I grew up, I was raised, and when I, my mother and father never told me to hate anyone, or they never told me to dislike anybody because of their race or color. We never talk about that. I, as a matter of fact, I, I started listening to this stuff when I came to this state. What do you think of that? Um, you know, it's, it's distressing. It's disturbing. Um, I guess we can say we've come a long way, but I reflect on Clem Roberto Clemente, and I can see how that shaped you know, the contours of his reception of Fort Myers and certainly America. If you're just tuning in, we're discussing the life and legacy of Baseball Hall of Fame outfielder Roberto Clemente, who spring trained with the Pittsburgh Pirates at Terry Park in Fort Myers from 1955 to 1968. My guests are Glenn Miller. He's a journalist and instructor in the School of Journalism at Florida Gulf Coast University and past president of the, the Southwest Florida Historical Society. And Woody Hansen, he's a Fort Myers native and local historian who was a clubhouse boy for the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Kansas City Royals back in the day. To interact with the show and fellow listeners about our conversation or any of our episodes, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. Glenn, that blog post that you sent me, it had a quote from a woman named or Sherry Carroll. Who was Sherry? And I wanted to bring up what she said because I think it really shows a different side yeah, of him, Yeah, I did too. that story about 15 years ago. I interviewed Woody for this 
big blowout story in the news press looking back at the career of Clemente. And I found this woman. I don't know how I found this long time. Sherry Carroll. She was a realtor or something. And she talked about Clemente. And although he did go to Club 21 occasionally, she said he, she would often see him at the motel. By then, toward the end of his stay here, I guess the motels were – integrated, that he would stay in the hotel in the evening, stay of carousing and make uh, lampshades out of seashells or something, and that he had a creative artistic side to him as well as the athletic side and the humanitarian side. You have one of those lampshades? Uh, no. But I, <laughs> <laughs> no. But, you know, uh, Glenn's dead on. Um, I'll tell you what happened. Joe Brown ended up buying the Pirates, okay? Joe E. Brown. And he was aware of the problems, you know, with segregation and so forth. So he bought the hotel on the southwest corner of Lenhart Ave in US 41. I think it was called a Floridania, Floridana. Um, and so he moved all his ball players there spring training. And so they were no longer subject to, you know, Jim Crow and, you know, restrictions on race, creed, and color and the Bradford block. And that's, and, and I sat in a room with Clemente. Making those lampshades. Oh, that's, that's what you yeah. were when you made the. Yeah. So you were there for I the making there of for the lampshades. Yeah. And I, I, I just, I don't know. I hung out around that stuff, and I got lucky. Okay, and I'm in front of that room where Clemente was. I saw Bob Beale throw coconut up at the top of a coconut tree and knock like three coconuts down. You know, but I was in there helping Clemente, and he made those lampshades, and he sent them back to his family in Puerto Rico. And quick, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. Bob Veal was a six foot six fireballing yeah. uh, pitcher. Everybody not, might not remember Bob Veal, but we remember him. So he was six foot six, must have been throwing 100 miles an hour. So he yeah. picked up a coconut. He could probably really throw it. Uh, you pointed out in that story that he did that he, um, he finished his career with precisely 3,000 hits. And I alluded to it earlier, but for listeners who may not know, he died. Let me get this right. He was bringing relief supplies to Nicaragua. They took off from Puerto Rico in a plane and it went down. It was like New Year's Eve 1972, just a couple months after he had won the World Series. Um, just reflect on like what that was like learning of his death and the, the synchronicity of it. Boy, uh, it, was, it was a real splash. I mean, it, it, was, it, it hit like a ton of bricks. And, it, and I, I know among my, you know, myself and my friends, we were in Fort Myers High School, um, we were keenly aware of that. It's a moment you don't forget. Um, and, and that moment had context to us because of the Pirates and Fort Myers and because we'd seen him. But, and by then, you know, his, his legend had grown even so much more than, than we'd ever known. And, and he, you know, it, oh, man, it, it's just it's still with me to this day. And I, honestly, we, we, we heard that. And when we came back to school after New Year's, it was like everybody's talking about it. At least all the guys who played sports. Do you remember Hearing the news? Uh, yeah, I, I recall I was playing pickup basketball in St. Pete at a place called Roberts Community Center. Somebody said they because there's no internet back then, no no cell phones with the breaking news notifications. But yeah, I remember playing pickup basketball and somebody telling me about it. I was not aware that the Roberto Clemente Award was named after him. It was, I think it existed for a couple of years. Then they named it after him after he passed away, as I understand but, it. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that part of it. But the award is given once a year to one player in Major League Baseball who best exemplifies the spirit and humanitarian impulses of Clemente. And to put it in perspective, Major League Baseball has been around since 1876. So it's been 20,000 guys play Major League Baseball. And they picked one guy to name an award after for 
in the NFL, it's Walter Payton. In Major League Baseball, hmm. it's Roberto Clemente because of uh, what he did and how he died. Yeah, there's a great quote in the book I won't get into because it's too long here, describing what that, that was like, uh, his stature. And, read the quote. I'll read the quote. We've got time. We're going to read the quote. Okay, this is from David Moranis' book. Uh, if anybody's interested in Clemente, I highly recommend it. He was young. He went down in a plane crash. His body was lost to the sea, never found. He was on a mission of mercy, leaving his family on New Year's Eve to come to the aid of strangers. In Spanish, Clemente means merciful. Some of it had to do the way, with the way he looked and played on the ball field. Number 21, perfectly cut in his pirate uniform, a portrait of solemn beauty with his defiant jaw and soulful eyes. And much of it had to do with the way he lived. In sainthood, his people put a lamb in his arms. But he was no saint and certainly not docile. He was agitated, beautiful, sentimental, unsettled, sweet, serious, selfless, haunted, sensitive, contradictory, and intensely proud of everything about his native land, including himself. To borrow the words of the Puerto Rican poet Enrique Zorilla, what burned the cheeks of Roberto Clemente was the fire of dignity. Hmm. And now um, Roberto Clemente Day is September 15th, which kicks off the National Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States. So his, his mark is still certainly on this culture. Uh, all the pirates a couple of days ago wore number 21 in his honor. And there's a move afoot, uh, like number 42 is retired in tribute to Jackie Robinson. Nobody's wearing number 42 anymore to retire to number 21 in honor of Clemente. Any final thoughts, Woody? Um, well, yeah, thank you to Glenn for reading that. Uh, you know, brought up a lot. You know, I, I remembered I saw a program, um, and it, uh, it ended with his mother saying that he he didn't die a baseball player; he died a humanitarian, and he be, should be remembered for that. And I, I also remember the Pirates went down, you know, on an anniversary of, of that event, and um, they went on the runway and went out to the edge of the water and then turned around and walked back. And Manny Sanguin had left the runway and gone into the water and was just like swimming after him. And um, very poignant. Do you have a final thought? Yeah, uh, final thought regarding the plane crash. In this book, I keep referencing it. I, I didn't reread this portion of the book to prepare for this interview. But Moranis investigated what happened. The plane was not loaded properly. If anybody out there knows aviation, you just proper way to load mm -hmm. stuff in an airplane. The tires were underinflated. The plane wasn't in good shape. The pilot wasn't properly trained for that aircraft. It was, it was tragedy waiting to happen. Hmm. Well, we do have to end the show, but I want to end with another soundbite from that 1972 um, um, interview. This was him reflecting on what life after baseball might hold. Yeah, I tell you the truth. I never think about that. Uh, people always ask me, uh, how much money do you have? Hmm. What's going to happen to you? Are you secure? I don't worry about that, Sam. The only thing I worry is about being healthy. If I can live, if I can... Uh, have my health, I could work. I don't care if I'm a janitor, I don't care if I drive a cab. As long as I have a decent job, I will work. I know like some of the fellows that they've been rich and they lost everything that they have and they kill, kill themselves because of the money. So to me, I can be a person uh, like me today that I'm making pretty good money, but at the same time, I live a life of a common fellow. I know the big shot. 
That was Roberto Clemente from the final uh, TV interview that he gave two months before his death in October of 1972 from the Pittsburgh Cable News Channel. That is all the time we have. Thank you guys both for you know helping us remember Roberto Clemente. Glenn Miller is a journalist and currently instructor in the School of Journalism at Florida Gulf Coast University and past president of the Southwest Florida Historical Society. Glenn, thanks for coming back. My pleasure. Thank you. And Woody Hansen is a Fort Myers native. He was also a clubhouse boy for the Pittsburgh Pirates back when Roberto Clemente was playing. Woody, always a pleasure to have you in. Um, Thank you. Great to be here. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Richard Chinqui. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punta Gorda, and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island, a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University.